From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. A very warm welcome to a daily power parasha. Today is Tuesday, May 17th, 2022. And I'm excited to be here with you to study Torah. All right. Um, This week's Torah portion is Bahar. Yesterday we started the Torah portion and the main mitzvah, like the big mitzvah at the start, was the mitzvah of Shemitah, which is the sabbatical year. Every seven years, the, the land in the land of Israel was meant to lay fallow and not be worked. I.e., if you had a farm, you were not allowed to plow or sow or harvest or any of that in your field. It was essentially hefker, which means ownerless, uh, vis-a-vis you. Anyone could eat from it. Anyone could pick from it. And that was the status of the seventh year in the, in the land of Israel. Till this very day... Shemitah is observed. Many, many farmers today in Israel are still observing the laws of Shemitah. And in fact, this year is a Shemitah year. So this year, there are many farms that are not being worked for, uh, uh, by those that, are, that own them and are, try, and are keeping the, uh, the biblical commandment. In other words, it's, it's one of those laws that is in place, one of the mitzvot that's in place, whether or not there's a temple. It's not about the temple. Right. If you notice, you didn't. You, we're not bringing these crops to the Kohen to the temple as an offering. It's just laying the land, lay fallow, and that is in effect whether or not there is a temple. So even to this day, farmers in Israel are observing the sabbatical year, and it's this actual year that it's happening. All right. Um, Do they get paid? By who? The farmers. By the government. Yeah. I don't believe so. How are they living? That's a good question. Maybe they did some fundraising. I saw, listen to this, I saw before the new year, before Rosh Hashanah, which is when the sabbatical year would start, I saw, you know, emails going around and whatever of the opportunity for people in the diaspora, i.e. outside of Israel, to buy a piece of of la- buy a piece of land or a piece of a farm or of a field in Israel and thereby do the mitzvah of Shemitah. Are you with me on this? Because if you, if you buy, right, if you buy a square foot in a farm or in a field, right, in Israel, and then you don't work it, so you, you own land in Israel and you're not working it, so you're observing the sabbatical year. So I think that was a way of making some money. You know, by farmers that have that have their land. You know, if they can sell off part of the field before that sabbatical year and give people the opportunity to do a mitzvah and also get some get some cash flow, I think that was a win-win. But I don't know who exactly was doing it. You know, who was actually facil- who was actually getting the money and who was facilitating it. I just saw an email go around. As far as how the average farmer is able to survive for a full year, I don't know. We would have to look it up. I mean, ask uh, ask your son. He might know. He's right. on. He's on the ground. The grandkids, right? Right. <laughs> they. They. You know what? If you find out, let us know tomorrow or anytime. Let us okay. know if you find out that information. How are the? How is the? You know the the um, conscientious Israeli farmer trying to keep Torah law. How do they? What what type of income? How does that work for this year? It's a good question. Okay. All right. Yes. Let's jump in. So that's how we started the Torah portion. We then talked about the Yovel, which is the Jubilee year, every 50 years. Not only is it a Shemitah year, standard sabbatical, but also the land ownership reverts back to the original ownership and any indentured servants go back to a state of freedom, etc. And then we talked about, what was the second reading? Let me just go back for a second. And then, oh yeah, yeah. Okay, oh yeah, we talked about not harming someone financially and not harming somebody with words. So don't rip off someone in a sale or a purchase and also don't 
say something nasty or um, not only nasty, but um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Dishonestly. Don't say something that's dishonest to someone else to try to get what you want out of them. All right, Torah reading for Bahar. Today is Tuesday, reading number three, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 19. Let's begin. If you keep, God says, if you keep the laws of Shemitah, sabbatical year, the laws of Yovel, the Jubilee year, if you're not defrauding each other financially or verbally, and the land will then yield its fruit, what's going to happen? Everything's going to grow in the right way. And you will eat to satiety. That means that you will eat to the point that you are satisfied and live upon it securely. Here the Torah promises, God promises reward for keeping the aforementioned mitzvot, Shemitah, Yovel, and not defrauding each other. The land will yield its fruit. You will eat and be satisfied and you will live securely upon the land. That, those are some tremendous Tremendous blessings, right? Profit, in this case, food. Food's going to grow. When you eat it, it will be in a healthy way and you will live securely upon your land. Look, this middle one, this middle blessing, you will eat to satiety. That's, to me, that's a really important blessing. I want to correlate it to money. You know, a person could earn a lot of money and yet end up spending it on things that are not happy things. Right? I don't, I don't, I'm sure I don't need to give examples of this, but a person can make a ton of money and it ends up going to things that are unpleasant. So it's one thing to make money. It's another thing to use it for only good things. Those are two different blessings. A person can make $10 million and end up spending it all on God knows what. Negative things. So the, here, here the point is, may the land, the land will yield its fruit and you'll eat it to satiety, which means that you're going to eat it in a healthy fashion. It's going, to, it's going to satisfy you. It's going to be a good consumption. You'll spend it. You'll expend it wisely or in a healthy fashion. And of course, you'll live securely in your borders. Verse number 20. And here the Torah addresses, God addresses directly the farmer who has no clue what they're going to do for a year. And if you should say, and by the way, rarely, if ever, does the Torah get into the potential question of the person who's struggling with the mitzvah, right? We don't find this regarding uh, uh, meat and milk. The Torah says, don't mix meat and milk. We don't find the Torah says, if you say, I really like a cheeseburger, so what should I do? God says, don't worry, I'll take care of you. I'll make sure that uh, your, your, your life will go on. Never says that. Doesn't say that by, by, by other mitzvot. Here, the Torah gets into the psychology and the, 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 the potential, not even potential, the obvious pushback against this mitzvah. Let's take a look at it inside. And if you should say, what will we eat in the seventh year? We will not sow and we will not gather in our produce. What are we going to eat? How is this going to work? How are we going to make money? Listen to this. Know then. Remember, it's not only making money. It's about when you don't plant in the seventh year, then you're not going to eat in the, in the year that follows either. Right? If you're not plant, if you take a year off from the field, <laughs> your field is going to be destroyed. It's, it's just going to, it's going to be a disaster. It's going to take a while to get back into, into production. So God says, here's my promise. Know then that I will command my blessing for you in the sixth year, and it will produce for three years. In other words... The blessing of year six is actually going to be a triple blessing. There's going to be enough food for year six, enough food for year seven, and enough food for year eight. Because year eight, you're not going to get anything otherwise because you didn't plant in year seven. You're not going to eat, year, you're not going to eat in year eight. Again, year eight, as I said yesterday, is really year one of the next cycle. But just for our mathematics, six, seven, eight, as opposed to six, seven, one, which sounds weird, six, seven, eight. That will be the blessing that God promises for keeping observing the Shemitah. And you will sow in the eighth year while still eating from the old crops until the ninth year. In other words, you're going to eat year six, year seven, and year eight all from your sixes crops until the ninth year. 
Until the arrival of its crop, i.e. the new crop that you planted in the eighth year, you will eat the old crop. I hope that makes sense. God is promising, God is promising and guaranteeing that the land is going to respond and it's going to be incredible. Let's look at Rashi. <clears throat> so the, the blessing is, the land will yield its fruit and you will live upon it securely, i.e., Rashi says, you will have no worry about a year of drought. Securely could mean a, a bunch of things. Securely could mean security, like you're not worried about external enemies attacking the land. You're not worried about invasions from foreign... Uh, from, um, you're not worried about invasions from foreign um, entities. That's one idea. But Rashi says that's not what it means here in this context. In this context of living upon the land securely, it means that you're not going to have anxiety. You're not going to have digus. You're not going to have fear of drought. Securely meaning no worry about drought. And you will eat to, you will eat to satiety. There will be a blessing in it even inside your innards, Rashi says. It means the digestion is going to work out well. When you eat it, it's going to be good. It's going to be healthy. And then again, the Torah addresses the potential question. What are we going to eat in the seventh year? Gevald. We will not sow. We will not gather in the produce. Rashi says, what does it mean? And we will not gather in to the house for storage. Because as we said yesterday, the farmer, the owner of the field is allowed to eat from the field but doesn't own it to the exclusion of anyone else. In other words, everyone can eat from the field, including the owner, but you can't store it. Right When it's your field, you can store the food, you can store the grain, you can store the produce, and you can use it throughout the year. Growing season is not 24-7. It's not 365 days a year. Sorry, I mean 24-7. I meant 365 days a year. It's a certain time of year. So what you do is you gather in a lot of the pro- you gather in all the produce and you keep it so it lasts for the whole year. Well, if it's not yours, everyone's gathering it. You have to eat for this week. And now what? What happens after that? Okay, well, that's the anxiety here. What's, uh, we will not gather in our produce. Rashi says, for example, wine and fruit are the trees and aftergrowth that grew spontaneously and therefore was not sown by you. So what are we going to eat? We can't gather that in. We can't store that stuff. So God answers, God promises, I will command my blessing and it will produce for three years. What does that mean, Rashi? He says for three years. For part of the sixth year from Nisan when the crop is reaped until Rosh Hashanah. So second half of year six. For the entire seventh Shemitah year. And for the eighth year, namely, for they will sow a new crop in Marcheshvin in, in, in fall of the eighth year and reap this new crop in Nisan while still eating of the sixth year's crop. So Rashi just gives us a timeline of when things grow in Israel. Things will grow in the spring and summer in Israel. Right? That's when things grow. Like, uh, I don't know, April, May, June, that time of year. So you're planting in... September, October, and it's growing essentially six months. It's coming up six months later. So the, the blessing kicks in in the sixth year, second half of the sixth year, when things are growing, the full seventh year when you're not doing anything to the land, and then the first half of the, of the eighth year when you, you planted, but that didn't grow until after the second half of that year, and that's when things will grow and return normally. So those are your three years, half of six, the full seven, and half of eight until the new crop grows. Yes, Donna. So in modern day Israel, if someone buys a piece of land that's never been farmed for some reason and wants, so is the sabbatical, does he just move in, does he just take whatever year? Is there a universal sabbatical? Excellent question. Excellent question. Yes. The answer is yes. It's not about when you bought it. It's not you count the years from when you got it. It's, a, it's an objective cycle, and, and that's a very important point to clarify. Everybody observes the sabbatical year the same year. So if you bought a field, or not you, if one buys a field, like right before sabbatical year, that was, that was not the best due diligence, right? That was not a good, I mean, unless you don't care, it's fine. I mean, it's like you just, you know, give it a year off and then, and then start actually working it. But yeah, you're exactly right. It's, it's, an, it's an objective year, your cycle. It's just like, um, it's like Shabbos, right? Shabbat. It's an objective. It's Shabbat is Shabbat. 
Or a leap, leap year. Or a leap year, exactly. Yeah. It's happening, it's on the calendar, it's set. So this year is a sabbatical year. And uh, yeah, if anybody bought a farm right before, yeah, there you go. And, and I should say that not everyone observes the sabbatical year, just like not everyone observes any given mitzvah. That's just the way it is. However, it's important for someone that wants to, you know, eat the food, eat food in, in a in, in a uh, in a in a spiritually conscientious conscientious way. It can become a little tricky to eat produce imported from Israel right about now. You with me on this? Because sorry, not import. Um, yeah, imported from Israel or exported. Anyway, produce from Israel that hits our shores um, or anything, like uh, crackers or anything that's made of, of wheat. So you want to make sure that you're, that you're buying it and, and eating it from a farm that observed Shemitah. Otherwise, it would be, you know, on a mitzvah level, problematic. So that adds another wrinkle to... Uh, to buying Israeli foods this, you know, around this time. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Back inside. Let's take a look at Rashi. And you will sow in the eighth year while still eating the old crops until the ninth year, Rashi says, until the festival of Sukkot in the ninth year. The time of the crop, the time the crop of the eighth year was brought into the house. Oh, sorry. I need to clarify one more time. In that eighth year, the harvest, the food grows in April, May, June. But as I mentioned, I don't remember when, I don't know, a few days ago or a few weeks ago, or within the last little bit of, bit of time, they would leave the produce, in the, the harvest in the field to dry out and they would bring it in Sukkot. So essentially that's when you're only starting to eat. You're, you don't eat, at least from the, the grains that grow, you're not eating Right away, right away in Passover time of the eighth year because you're letting it dry out in the field and you're only eating it the following, six months later, essentially, the following Sukkot. As Rashi says, for throughout the summer season, it was kept in granaries in the field. In Tishrei, that is the time the crop is gathered into the house. Now, there were occasions when it would need to yield for four years. Look at that. For four years. Namely, in the sixth year preceding the seventh Shemitah, when they would refrain from doing work on the land for two consecutive years, the seventh year, which is Shemitah, and the, the Jubilee year, which is the Yovel year. A verse, however, refers to all other Shemitah years, i.e., the first through sixth cycles of Shemitah. What Rashi's saying is, you know, when God is saying, Don't worry, I got this. My blessing will last for three years. Every 50 years, the blessing has to last for four years, not just three years. Because it's got to be year six, year seven, year eight, and year nine. Why? Because year six, well, that's the first year. The food has to come up. Year seven, nothing was planted. Year eight, again, nothing is planted because it's Yovel, Jubilee, every seven cycles of seven. is the Jubilee year. And then, then the following years, six, seven, eight, the ninth year would be the first year that you can plant, but it doesn't come in until halfway through and you're not gathering it in until the following year, until year 10 in this case. So that would, um, that would throw things up. Well, not throw things up. That would, that would enhance the need for the miracle instead of three years, four years of blessing. Okay, but God says, I got this. No need to worry. No need to panic. I got this. Okay, back inside. We did Rashi's uh, for the first several verses. Let's go. Let's go to verse 23. The land sh shall not be sold permanently. Okay, the land shall not be sold permanently, for the land belongs to me, God says. The land belongs to me. For you are strangers and temporary residents with me. So interesting. It's so interesting when you start seeing the world from like God's perspective, when God brings us into his view of things. It's like, you guys, <laughs> you guys are very temporary. All of us. I mean, how long, how long are we here for? 
right? We're strangers, we're temporary, we're, we're visitors, temporary residents. Which, by the way, also highlights, or, or I think brings into focus, when God says, treat the stranger amongst you kindly. Right? Someone who's visiting or temporary resident, treat them kindly. Right? Don't, you, know, you know what it's like to be, to be cast as an outsider. That's not good. But if you think about it from God's perspective, everyone is a temporary resident. Imagine, I want to give you an example. I know it's not exactly what the Torah is discussing here, but I want to give you an example. Imagine... You have a big house. You have a mansion. And, you know, there's somebody that you meet that needs a place to stay. Okay? Need a place to stay, so you invite them in. You give them a room in your house. Plenty, plenty of room, plenty of space. You give them a room. And they're so grateful. Oh, they're so grateful to be given housing. You hook them up with housing for free. Unbelievable. And then what happens? Somebody else falls in need. And you invite them, and you I'll give them a room. Imagine if the first guy, and the first guy was there for, let's say, let's say a year. And now you're bringing another guy. Imagine if the first guy looks at the other guy and says, what are you doing here? Hey, this is my house. It's like, how dare you? You know, I can't use the bathroom because you're brushing your teeth now and I, I need to go in. I was here first. You would tell the guy, buddy, it's not your house either. It's like, what are you? You're getting all territorial. You're also a guest. Because you were there first. <laughs> you were there first. So the other, so you're looking negative at the other guy. Are you kidding me? You're a guest and you're a guest. Get along. Like, I'm the balabas. I'm the owner of the house. You're a guest and you're a guest. One guest is looking down at the other guest. Come on. That's how God looks at it when we get all territorial. God says, don't you remember? This is my mansion. All y'all are guests. Everyone here is a guest. You're a guest and you're a guest. So one guest is going to turn their, you know, snub their nose at the other guest. Are you kidding me? It's my house. To remind us of this. We have the Shemitah year, the sabbatical year. Where God says for one year, it's not yours. It's almost like going back to my analogy. Like the owner of the palace says... Or the mansion, sorry. The owner of the mansion says, okay, for one week, you don't, you don't have access to your room or whatever it is. Like I gave you a room, you don't have access to it. Just, to re- just so you're reminded who's, who's really the owner here. Just, just so you don't get so comfortable that it's like, oh, look, look at this, look at this pa- mansion that I built. That you built? I built this path. Like, wh- don't claim ownership if it's not yours. Right? So that's kind of what God says with the Shemitah, what God does with the Shemitah. God says, every seven years, you're going to be reminded that it's not actually yours. It's not actually yours. I'm doing you a favor. I'm being nice, giving it to you. Not that I'm asking for much. I'm not, I, I don't want you to, I, I don't require validation or constant gratitude. I'm not needy like that. But just for your own health and well-being, and the health and well-being of society, you need to know that you're not in charge. You need to know that it's not your mansion. You need to know that, we're, that you're living in God's beautiful world. Because the moment you think it's yours, that's when all the fighting begins. All of the territorial fighting, it's mine, it's not yours. I'm on the inside, you're on the outside, I'm better than you, you're worse than me. All of that begins from entitlement from the sense of its mind. Shemitah was designed to break that, to break that and to remind us we don't own this. We, all of us, are temporary, very temporary residents. We are tourists in God's world. That's it. It's the extent. By the way, this is not to make us depressed and, you know, bemoan our mortality or to think, well, life is futile anyway. What's the point? It's so short. That's not the intention. The intention is very specifically designed so that we don't become arrogant, territorial, and hostile to others. That's it. How many times did the Torah say, last week's Torah portion, and throughout Torah, how many times did the Torah say to be careful to treat the other with respect? And if, it, and if, if, if the instruction to do that is not enough, then take a year off from your farm. Take a year off from your field. 
and remind yourself that you don't actually own this world. And the moment you know you don't own it, you're probably going to fight less about it. That's the goal. That's the intention. As we see here, literally described um, inside the Torah's text. The land, and this is not about Shemitah necessarily, it's about when you sell land every 50 years, it reverts back to the, to the original owner. But it's the same concept, same mitzvah, same, same result. I don't own this. I bought, I bought a piece of land in Israel. After 50 years, it goes back. You only buy it prorate, as we said, right, up until that 50 years. But the point is, the land shall not be sold. Back to 23, I'm going to read it again. The land shall not be sold permanently. Why? If you could sell, buy or sell land permanently, you know what that would, that would, that would engender within a person, that would kind of inculcate within a person, that would train or educate a person to believe that it's theirs. That's, that's, that's dangerous. Human beings thinking that they own things, thinking that it's theirs, they created it, that's the biggest danger. That's the, that arrogance, that entitlement is the source of all hostility and all fighting. Straight up. So the land, God says, verse 23, shall not be sold permanently. For the land belongs to me. I don't know how, how more clearly God could say this. The, the land, meaning the earth, especially the land of Israel. The land belongs to me. For you are strangers and temporary residents with me. You don't own the palace or the mansion. I do. You're a guest in my house, just like the other guy. That's it. You're guests. And if you think, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm permanent. Okay. Every seven years, let go of your field. And every 50 years, real estate purchases revert. Therefore, throughout the land of your possession, you shall give redemption for the land. Right? Throughout the land of your possession means the land of Israel. You shall give redemption for the land. Redemption. Geulah. There's redemption. Redemption means freedom. Freedom from narcissism. Freedom from a mistaken notion that we own things and we're forever. Again, the biggest danger, I'm going to rephrase this slightly. You know, the biggest danger for human beings is believing that they are in control. Or that, sorry, that they are in charge. Us believing that we are godlike or that we are God, that's where all the problems begin. There is God. There is the one who created, built, and sustains the mansion. And then there's us. And we are temporary residents. We are guests in God's home. Like we said last night, treat it nicely. You're a guest in someone's home. You can't trash it. Imagine, somebody says, hey, you need a place to live? No problem. I got, I got you covered. I have a beautiful room in my beautiful mansion. Gratitude. Hopefully, ideally, right? You have gratitude, you know, just incredible gratitude. Now you're going to go and trash the place? You're going to kick the walls? You're going to punch holes through the wall? You're going to spray paint, you know, graffiti. You're going to, of course not. You're going to treat it nicely. You're going to take care of the space. So that number one, got to take care of our world. Number two, not to become entitled. Sense of entitlement. Like, I own this, you're out. Who, what, where, when? Yes, in Judaism, there are laws of ownership. Yes. In fact, in our course, Beyond Right, actually I have the textbook right here, right? In our, in our new JLI course, Beyond Right, Lesson 5 talks all about ownership from a Jewish perspective. There is the concept of ownership, granted. But at the same time, we're not meant to become arrogant about it and think that we're a God, that we're in control, that we built it, that we created it. That's very dangerous. And so these mitzvot, Shemitah, Yovel, the sabbatical year, the jubilee year, the idea that when you sell property, it reverts back in that jubilee in the 50th year, all of those were designed for the same point. To remind us, that we're temporary residents, we're temporary, we're guests in God's beautiful earth. All right, let's look at Rashi. Let me share my screen. Let's jump in. Okay. Rashi, the land shall not be sold permanently. Although this is already understood from the earlier verses in our passage, verses 10 and 13, it is stated here to impose a negative commandment regarding the reversion of fields to the original owners in Jubilee, that the purchaser must not seize the land forcibly in an effort to keep it as a permanent sale. The Torah says when you buy land at, at 50 years, and again, to Donna's point before, this is a universal or objective 50-year count. It's not 50 years from the date of your purchase. This is, it 
could be that the next year is year 50. It could be that you still have another 49 years. Who knows? Depends on when you buy it. But the purchaser is not allowed to seize the land forcibly and say, it's mine, I'm not giving it back. I bought it, I'm not giving it back. That would not be right. There's a negative commandment over here. The Torah says, not only should it revert back, it's not allowed to not revert back. So someone who tries to hold it violates not only the positive command, but also the negative commandment. Um, permanently, Rashi says, that means irreversibly, permanent irreversible sale should not happen with land in Israel. Why? For the land belongs to me, Rashi says, so says God. Do not be selfish about the land, hesitating to return it to its rightful owner, Jubilee, because the land does not belong to you. God says it belongs to me. Therefore, throughout the land of your possession, you shall give redemption to the land, Rashi says. The seemingly superfluous word here throughout. Right. Why throughout? It says, Uvechal Eretz Achuzatchem. And in the entire land of your possession, or throughout the entire land of your possession, why does it say throughout? It should say, in the, in the land of your possession. Why throughout? Rashi says it comes to include the right of relatives to redeem houses of all cities and a Hebrew slave. In other words, not only can the owner buy back his home, but the relative can also buy back and the relative can also redeem and a, a Jewish indentured servant. Rabbi. Yes. Is it the year? You count the year, the year that it was purchased, and then you say you purchased it from them. Is it year one for you, and it could be year eleven for them, or no? Good question. With regards to the jubilee year, um, and/or the shemitah year, it's a it's an objective count. So if it's Year 11 for everybody, it's year 11 for you for the purchaser, even though it's even though for you it's year one because you just bought it. But yeah. if, it's, if it's year 11, then it's really year 11. Therefore, the purchase price would, you know, the market would adjust itself and you wouldn't pay full price for the house. So let's just use a simple example. Let's say there was a house that was, let's use an, a very, very simple number, $50,000, 50,000. So essentially, it's kind of like a thousand a year, right? So if you buy year one, great, pay the full fifty thousand because you get you have well forty nine, whatever. You have about fifty years of usage. If you buy year eleven, the purchase price is only going to be about forty. Why? Because you know you don't have you only have another forty years. You 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 didn't have the first ten years or eleven years of usage. So you missed out. I mean, not 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 blaming anyone, but the reality is you're not going to have. You know, full use. The seller probably won't be able to sell it for fifty thousand, because who's going to want to buy it only for forty years at the full price of fifty? Now, if you live in times like these, you could sell it for a million. Why? Because you know, real estate. But the point is that uh, that 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 it would be prorated essentially, so that it reflects how much actual usage the purchaser has. Now, yeah, no problem. So now we look back. Um, at Rashi, the simple meaning is connected to the passage that follows that one who sells his property is permitted to redeem it after two years, either he or his relative, and the purchaser cannot impede this redemption. Basically, as the Torah will continue, we're not going to do it today, but as the Torah will continue, there is a way to redeem property after its sale, and I'll explain what redeem means, even before the 50th year. Remember, every 50 years, the land goes back to its original division, right? The land goes back to its original owners and tribal divisions. Remember, the land of Israel was divided by the tribes. So this is a way to get everything back to the way it was originally uh, um, uh, partitioned or, or apportioned, as it were. But what if somebody sells their ancestral land, their, you know, their family field, because they needed the money? They needed the money. They needed the $50,000, so they sold it. But then they end up, you know, they use that, they invest it in business, and they make profit, and now they can buy it back. They want to buy it back. Do we tell the owner, sorry, buddy, too late, you got to wait 50 years? Or 
do we allow them to purchase it back? Because if the intention is that it go back to the original owner, well, what if the original owner has the money sooner than the 50 years? Can they buy it back? Is there a buyback program? The answer is yes, but depending on, on where the field was and what it looks like, is it a field? Is it a house? Is it in a walled city? Is it not in a walled city? Depending on how we answer those questions is how the law flows. We'll deal with that. Um, we'll deal with that with those cases and those details tomorrow. Sorry. Um, let me see when we're going to deal with that. Yes. The next few days. In reading four, in reading five, we speak about this extensively. Hold on. Yeah. Rabbi Ari. Five, uh, four and five. Yes. Hey, Mark. There's an interesting note. Uh, I mean, in Rashi, uh, on the very last uh, uh, pasuk there, yeah, uh, it says uh, it says of his ancestral heritage. He says, but not all of it. it. Says the Torah. This is what Rashi says. The Torah teaches us proper conduct that he should leave a field for himself. But what if he hasn't got any money? I don't understand that. Uh, you may say, yeah, I'm not supposed to sell the whole thing, but I don't have a choice. So why does it wait? Can that? you can you read that again? Wait, can you read that one more sure. time? Yeah, in other words, the very last pasuk says. Uh, 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 it says if you uh, it says if your brother it says if your brother becomes impoverished and sells of his ancestral heritage that's what it says in the Torah and Rashi says of his ancestral heritage but not all of it. the Torah teaches his proper conduct that he should leave a field for himself that's what right. Rashi says but what if he doesn't have a choice how can that be proper conduct right right good question you're right. I think it's talking about a case where there is an option to keep some of it. Yeah. It, you're right. If there's no other option, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, for sure. But ideally, I think the point is, what's the ideal? And then we have to get to the practical. The ideal is that the fellow who sells the property because he needs the cash should retain some of it. Because again, God has um, an interest in keeping things. There's really two points. Number one, to remember that God's in control of things. And number two, God has an interest in keeping things in the original families, in the original tribal divisions, fam familial divisions, etc. Look, it's a, it's a model. It's a very fascinating model. The question would be, you know, is it realistic? But, you know, the other point is, and, as, and we'll see this over the next few days, is what's the alternative? I mean, the alternative is a system, and I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to condemn any other system, including right here in the U.S., but you have another system, you have other systems where it ends up being that only a certain percentage of people are actually owning homes and owning property and others aren't. And it's creating a, a gulf in, in, um, in, in when it comes to income and, and, and you know, it creates a financial gulf between those that have property and, and therefore have wealth and those that don't have property. And don't have wealth. And it's a, there's a big imbalance over there. And I think that in, in the Jewish system, and, and obviously it's much smaller. It was much more contained. We're not dealing with a massive country of, you know, hundreds of millions of people. I get it. You know, these are things that, the question is, is it scalable? Can you go from, you know, back then in, in the times of Moses, how many people did they have? They had two or three million. Can you scale two or three million, you know, to 350 million people? That's another question. And that's a valid question. Um, but think about that concept. Think about the ancient laws of Israel, where every family, every tribe, every family had land. And even if they sold land because they, they needed the money, they got the money, and eventually they got back the land. It's unbelievable. The concept is unbelievable. We've talked about classes. We may even have done it in Judaism's Gifts of the World. I don't remember if it was there or in another class that we talked about this, this very concept. In this, very, in this very context, which is, this was Judaism's way, God's way, according to some commenters, of not just reminding us that God's in control, but allowing a more equitable division of assets and, and ensuring that even if for, for a generation and a half or two, right, so they fell into hard times, at some point... There's going to be the possibility to, to once again, you know, uh, to have a source of income, a source of wealth. This is part of the fabric 
of Jewish, uh, the Jewish sociological, I don't know, sociological, the Jewish um, vision, the Torah's vision of a Jewish society where everyone has, and even when they sell, they're going to get it back so that you don't have generational poverty. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Is it scalable? Can we transfer that to the U.S.? I don't know how you would do that. I really don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I mean, like, Say easily the ship has sailed anyway, either way. But I don't know how you do that when you don't have a people that begins as one with a similar focus and mission and whatever. Twelve tribes of the same, ultimately the same mishpacha, the same family. It's much easier and more uh, doable when you have that, when you have that type of containment. And it's it's a smaller scale. However, that being said, the values of Torah certainly ring true. And the value is we want everyone to be okay. We want everyone to to be reminded that God is in control, that, that we're all guests in God's, in God's home. All of these are really important lessons. So as we conclude today's DPP, I think we'll just focus on this. You know, remember the analogy. The analogy, or the, the, the analogy of, the, of, of the, the fellow who owns the mansion and invites one person in and then invites a second person in. And how person one turning on person two would be silly. Person one turning, to per, turning on person two and saying, oh, you're just a guest. It's like, did you look in the mirror? You're also a guest. When we look down at others, and we're like, oh, we own and you don't. Essentially, it's the same thing. Let us never become so arrogant and filled with hubris that, uh, that we can't see the other as a mirror of ourselves, all temporary guests in God's home. I'll conclude with a story, one of my favorite stories. The story takes place, oh, who was it? Was it the Magad of Mizrich? I want to say it was the Magad. I think so. Where a wealthy visitor came to see the Rebbe, the Magad Mizrich. He was the second generation of the Hasidic movement. It was the ba- Baal Shem Tov started the Hasidic movement. And his major student and successor was Rabbi Dov Ber of Mizrich, known as the Magad or the preacher of Mizrich. So he was second generation Hasidic, Hasidic movement. He was the, the major teacher of the Alter Rebbe, who was the founder of Chabad. There's the general Hasidic movement and then the Chabad Hasidic movement. Two different things, um, related obviously, but the second generation of the Hasidic movement was the, the Magadam Mizrich. And he lived, if I have the story correct with the right person, he lived very simply. He lived in a simple hut, barely any furniture, very sparse, very, I mean, nowadays we would call it open plan. But like, you know, it was very, very, is the word austere? Very simple, very simple. So once there was a wealthy fellow who went to the Magid for a blessing. Now, this is before Facebook, YouTube, social media. You know, back in the day, if you never met someone, you don't know what they look like. If you were never there, you don't know what their house looked like. You just, you had no idea. You just heard that this is a great tzaddik who can give blessings and advice. So this fellow takes the journey to Mizrich to find the Magid. He asks around, where's the Magid of Mizrich? Where's the rabbi? Where's the rabbi? And he was told to go in such and such hut by the edge of the forest. That's where you'll find him. Okay, so he goes and finds the hut, knocks on the door. The Magad invites him in. They have a conversation, and the man asks his questions, and the Magad answers and gives him blessings, etc. At the end of the conversation, the man turns to the Magad and says, uh, Please forgive me for asking this question. You're a great rabbi, a great scholar, a great tzaddik, a great mystic. You know, why, are you, why are you living so... So meagerly, why are you living so impoverished? Where's all your stuff? Where's all your furniture and, and possessions and stuff? So the Magad turns to him and says, good question, but I have a question for you. Where's all your stuff? I don't see all your stuff. Where's your stuff? He's like, Rabbi, I'm just passing through. I'm just traveling. In my home, I have everything set. The Magad said, I'm also just passing through. In my home, Above, everything said. We're all temporary travelers in this journey of life. And when we remember that, it does us all a lot of benefit. Right? It's all a journey. It's all a journey. And we're here to do whatever we can to make the world a better place. All right. Thanks for joining me today for DBP. Um, Ray, great to see you. Donna, great to see you. Sarah, great to see you. Mark, great to see you. And Ekaterina, great to see you as well. All right, any questions, comments before we close out? What time is tonight? Eight o'clock. Eight o'clock. 
Yeah, eight o'clock, we got tonight's classes. Zoom, great class. It's all about cancel culture and the Jewish value of personal rehabilitation. Oh, speaking of which, Mark, I actually have, I wasn't sure if you were coming Tuesdays or Thursdays. I have a book for you. I don't know, this week, are you, do you want to do Tuesday or Thursday? Because if you want to do Tuesdays, I mean, it's too late to get it to you now, but I can send it to you and you can get it. Um, or are you here? Either way, it's fine. The, the plan is Thursday. Okay. Because Danny and I are going to both be there on Thursday with the idea oh, to play golf. Perfect. And if you can join us, join us. Okay. I know he texted me. I have to text him back. I'll, I'll, have to, I'll check. I'll check this week. Maybe, maybe this week. Perhaps. I'm going to check. So I'll keep your book here. So I got your book. I got, I got it covered. Okay, good. Um, Donna, you had a question, comment? Yeah, I just was, when I was going to get the partial portion for me online yeah. here, I came up, but you know how you, all these, they try to get you to all these interesting stories. So like, I got to one that says seven things people get wrong when learning Kabbalah and how to get on the right track. So I just want to, so they go through different myths. Myth, myth number two, the basic books of Kabbalah have been translated and made accessible to anyone who wants to become more spiritual. You would think, why should that be a myth, right? That sounds, you know? yeah, that sounds legit. <laughs> Okay, the, the truth, the word, according to this, according to Svi Freeman, um, truth, the word Kabbalah means received because you can't learn Kabbalah without a teacher mm. who will provide you this wisdom through the lens of unbroken received tradition. Nice. Very cool. Nice. That's very cool. I like that. By the way, Svi Freeman, he's amazing. Rabbi Freeman is amazing. And, you know, he lives here in Atlanta. That's the feeling. He's involved with that. He, yeah, he lives up in Sandy Springs. He moved here a few years ago, right before the pandemic. Sure. Yeah, he lived in Tor Vancouver, Toronto, Los Angeles, and now he lives here in Atlanta. He's got his kid. Hold on. You know, Mark, you know uh, Rabbi Sharfstein from Georgia Tech? Yeah, his daughter married him, right? That's his daughter. Right. So he's got a few kids. They have a few kids that live here. There's a few siblings. So, you know, they follow, they follow the, uh, the mishpacha. That's how it works, right? Follow, follow the kids and the grandkids. Um, all right. Great to see you all. Hold on. I see some chat activity. Oh, why should we do the Asperism Observed? Oh, okay. Yeah, good. So it's a technicality, essentially. In other words, so Sarah's asking is, why don't we observe um, Shemitah here? And the answer is because the Torah says that in the, when you go into the land of Israel, then observe Shemitah. So it's tied into the land itself. The, the concept of Shemitah is universal, but the practical application is, um, is the, what's it called again, is, the, uh, is, is only in Israel. But you're right, conceptually, we should be Shemitahing all over. And not only every seven years, we should always be, be living the Shemitah life. Right? Hashtag. I feel like there should be a hashtag. Like living the Shemitah life. That perspective of, I'm not in charge, right? I'm like the sort of the maggot. I'm, I'm just passing through like everyone else, right? Just passing through. You're passing through. I'm passing through. We're fighting with each other, right? We're, we're like, we're, we're, we're grabbing. It's like, imagine you're the owner of a mansion. You invited two guests in and now they're fighting with each other. It's like, how, how much longer before I kick you both out? I, literally, right? How much longer before I kick you both? You guys are fighting over the toothpaste? It's my toothpaste. I bought the toothpaste. You didn't buy the It's my toothpaste. You're fighting over land that you didn't create? You're fighting over, over, over water resources that you didn't create? You're fighting over a lake? It's not your lake. We're fighting over toothpaste. It's an unbelievable... The, the perspective of, Jude, of Torah, of God. You see, we look at everything, obviously, from our perspective, like bottom up, like our limited, really limited and petty perspective. The Torah gives us glimpses of a divine perspective, and it's breathtaking and life-changing. All right, so I hope that makes sense. But you're right. We should do it here conceptually, and, and we literally should be living our lives with this vision. But technically, we can't... Uh, we not can. Technically, we don't have that mitzvah here. All right. We'll see y'all. Oh, yeah, sure. Can yeah. I ask? Yeah. How did the conversation go last night? It oh, it was, was re oh, it was fantastic. Yeah. About the uh, healing yeah. of the earth? Yeah. 
So yeah, it was great. We're gonna put up the audio. Hold on, let me see if it's up already. We have a full recording on that. It was really nice. Um, let's see if it's up yet. No, not yet. Okay, all right, it's gonna go up soon. It'll be up hopefully today. So check uh, check your favorite, either SoundCloud page or not. Okay, check our SoundCloud page or your uh, use your favorite podcast catcher or app to catch uh, Knowledge on the Deeper Side in Town Jewish Academy. All right, everybody. Good. And by the way, I mentioned this. Who did I mention this to? To Donna, I think? Oh, yeah, at the beginning of the class. Oh, but I don't think I mentioned this. I, um, I'm working on a... I'm working on an opportunity for a get-together. Not going to say a final get-together, but on a get-together. Maybe like a barbecue or something on a Sunday to get together. We did it last year. We'll do it again. Please, God. The date I'm looking at is June 26. Nothing is set. Nothing is determined yet. But this morning I was honing in on Sunday, June 26th as a good date to get together and connect and laugh and, uh, you know, schmooze. So that that is that. Um, Okay, stay tuned. Give you more information as the news breaks. Pleasure. Great to see everybody. Have a wonderful day. Hope to see you tonight for lesson two of uh, Beyond Right or Thursday. Till then, shalom. Take care. Thank you. Pleasure. See you guys. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at intownjewishacademy.org and on YouTube at Intown Jewish Academy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.